Well, good morning, church. My wife, Erin, and I live in uh, Liverpool, suburb of Syracuse, and we have three little girls, nine years old, six years old, and three years old. Recently, we were running some errands around town, and I was driving, and from the back seat came a question from my six-year-old, Caroline. Caroline said, Daddy, why are you the best driver in the whole world? And at first I was like, wow, well, thanks for noticing and kind of <laughs> nudge my wife. But I knew there was a reason why she asked. And so I said, Caroline, why do you think daddy is the best driver in the whole world? And she said, oh, well, it's because you're always telling all the other drivers how to drive. <laughs> and then it was my wife's turn to give me a nudge. One of the fun things about having little kids around you, whether they're your children, grandchildren, nephews, nieces, is that they have a way of teaching us still. There's much that we can learn from them. And I think that's generally true, that there are things that we can learn as we look at and listen to and consider the next generation. This morning, as we continue in the series, This Is Us, I want to talk to you about the next generation, specifically the idea of creating space for the next generation. Now, for the purposes of our talk this morning, when I use the phrase, the next generation, I'm talking about both millennials and Generation Z. Generation Z, which is also, they're also known as the founders or the homelanders. Um, this is anyone who was born after the year 2000. So anyone who is 18 and under. And then the millennials are typically your 18 to 36 year olds. So with the millennials, what's interesting about them is that there are now 75 million millennials in our country. They have recently passed the boomers as the largest generation in America. And the millennials, by the way, have grown up. There are 16 million millennial moms in our country, and it's, they're growing at a rate of 1 million a year. Now, there's some bad news with millennials as it relates to church. Seven out of 10 18 to 23 year olds will leave the church for at least a year. Two thirds of them never to return. In recent polls, 35% of millennials, when asked about religious, religious affiliation, uh, they check the box nuns. Now not Catholic sisters, but nuns, N-O-N-E-S, meaning that they are agnostic, they are atheists, or they just have no religious affiliation. And so books have been written and surveys have been done and studies have been conducted and it's pretty conclusive. Young people are leaving the church in droves. And, you know, when we consider this, the perception really is this. There's no space in the church world today for the next generation. Now, this is not a new problem for us. In fact, before we get into this, I want to point you to an ancient text in the Old Testament. In Judges chapter 2, Moses the prophet has died, and Joshua the general has died, and now there's a new generation that rises up. And in Judges chapter 2, verse 10, it simply says this, that after that generation died, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord or any of the things that he had done. From one generation to the next, the next generation doesn't know the Lord and doesn't know the things that he's done. So there's a lot of stake here in this conversation. And I'm just convinced that as a church and as the people of God, we have to be intentional, purposeful, passionate about creating space for the next generation. And this morning, what I want to do is I want to describe what that space might look like. Three different things. We're going to look at David's writings in Psalm 25 and see that 
we should create a space for honesty, a space for growth and a space for grace. So let's talk first about a space for honesty. And digital marketing experts estimate that the average American every single day sees four to 10,000 advertisements. Now that might sound a little high to you. In fact, one person who works for Red Crow Marketing thought, I don't know if that's accurate. So he decided to put it to the test. And he wrote a blog about his day where he decided to test this out. And he says this, on my test day, I woke up in the morning to my Sony radio alarm clock, heard about 14 ads on the local station before I even opened my eyes. I used my Panasonic TV and Dish Network receiver remotes, noticed a Kenwood receiver and Toshiba DVD player, and I watched and listened to 46 TV commercials as I got going. Standing at my sink, I count 51 product labels with an eyesight in my medicine cabinet and 47 other labels just standing in our bathroom while looking around. I'm up to around 200 ads and I haven't even combed my hair yet. I got dressed in my Fruit of the Loom undershirt, big dog t-shirt, Wrangler jeans, and Nike shoes. 11 brand advertisements are within eyesight in my closet. I'm not digging for them. I opened my pantry and counted 214 food brand labels, all colorful and professionally created. I get my box of Kellogg's for my Jersey made milk and count 62 product brands. I open a can of Folgers coffee to brew in my Mr. Coffee Maker. I've seen around 487 ad exposures and I haven't even finished breakfast. And he hasn't looked at his phone yet, where there's lots of ads coming. This generation, this next generation is the most advertised to generation ever. Everyone is selling something. I remember a time when the commercials were only between the show. Now there's commercials within shows and, and product placement. Everyone is selling something. And what's happened with the next generation, specifically with the millennials, is that it's created a sort of skepticism within them about any sort of truth claim at all. Because they've just been sold too much. They're nothing like our, the fictional character Buddy the Elf. You know Buddy the Elf as he's walking through Manhattan and he sees the neon sign that says world's best cup of coffee. Anybody remember this scene from Elf? And he bursts into this little coffee shop and very passionately and entirely sincerely yells out, way to go everyone, you did it, world's best cup of coffee, great job, great to meet you all. They're the antithesis of that. You know, they've watched enough ads to know not every place in town has the best slice of pizza. Those shoes aren't going to magically make me a great basketball player. Wearing that cologne doesn't make girls notice me any more than before. And so they're skeptical, they're cynical, and they're better armed with opposing viewpoints than ever before. I mean, when I was growing up, if I had to, in order to determine that something my parents told me wasn't true, I had to find out that someone else's parents disagreed. And that was my only, that was only, or go to the encyclopedias. But like, I didn't, ha now they're a click away at every moment and every minute from an expert contrarian opinion on anything. And so they're skeptical, they're cynical, they have access to these sort of opinions. We also, especially here in New York and in the Northeast, we live in an increasingly post-truth society. Everything is relativistic. What's true for you is great, but it's not true for me. Truth is up for grabs. Truth is viewed through the lens of experience. And surely it's not true just because the church says it's true. They're anti-institutional. They don't trust organizations intuitively like maybe 40, 50 years ago, people trusted certain organizations and institutions. And so 
as a result, what it means for this generation is that in order for something to really be true, it has to work. It has to work. And they're looking for truth that is lived out and fleshed out in the messiness of community and in the messiness of life. And so that's why it's so important for us to create a space for honesty. Well, in Psalm 25, if you look at the way David writes here, beginning in verse 16, listen to how honest he is. He says, turn to me and be gracious to me because I'm lonely and I'm afflicted. Relieve the troubles of my heart and free me from my anguish. Look on my affliction and my distress and take away all of my sins. See how numerous are my enemies and how fiercely they hate me. Guard my life and rescue me. Do not let me be put to shame for I take refuge in you, God. Now, I don't know how many of you had a conversation out in the lobby before you came in here, but I would guess most of them didn't sound something like this. Hey, how are you doing today? Well, I'm lonely, I'm afflicted, my heart is so heavy, I'm full of sin, I'm hated, and I'm, need of, I'm in need of rescuing. How are you? <laughs> I'm looking for someone else to talk to now. <laughs> we laugh, but we all know that nothing good happens when we put on our church faces and use our churchy phrases to prop up our appearances in our faith community. And, and by the way, the next generation has tremendous radar for that. They can see right through it. We have to create space for honesty. You know, the Bible is loaded with honesty, especially the Psalms. In fact, the ESV study Bible, when it's writing about this passage, Psalm 25 says that this Psalm is a lament which is just the expressing of a heart that has been broken. And it says, while it, it does express faith in God's kindness towards those who are faithful, it doesn't actually end with confidence. This psalm actually ends in tension and in mystery. And so it's, it's incredibly honest. Church should be a space where young people can come in and be honest about their questions and their doubts and their concerns and their objections without the fear of being ostracized marginalized, or worst of all, demonized for their questions. So how do we create space for honesty in our church? I think the first thing, let me give you three suggestions. Number one, we can't just invite questions. We have to celebrate them. It's one thing to say, we want your questions, bring them. But then the way that we respond very often speaks much louder than even the invitation to bring those questions. Don't just invite them, celebrate that they're being asked. Be so grateful that the next generation uh, feels comfortable enough in this space to come and say, I have this concern, I have this question. Say, I'm so glad that you've brought that question. I wanna celebrate the fact that we're having this conversation. Another thing that uh, we need to do if we're gonna create space for honesty is we need to embrace the mystery in our faith. There are some things that are simply hard to explain. We need to embrace the tension in some of the things that we believe. We need to embrace the fact that people outside of the church, especially in the next generation, they have very fair, very legitimate objections and concerns about the history of Christianity, about who we are and what we stand for. And we have to be willing to lean into that and not have little trite statements and pat answers for every question they ask. By the way, one of the fastest ways to end a conversation to end an important conversation is simply to have an answer for every question. If you have an answer for every single question that's asked, eventually the conversation will die. But if you're willing to say, I have that question too. I've wondered that myself. That actually is a mystery to me. That's okay. 
One more thing about creating a space for honesty is being willing to enter into their world and to see things through their eyes. Not just go into conversations seeking to be understood, but going into conversations seeking to understand. You know, I think one of the reasons why we struggle so much with honesty in, in the faith community environment is that we actually don't really believe the gospel. It's the gospel that frees our hearts to be honest about who we are. Because the gospel gives us all the same starting point. Regardless of what age you are, regardless of how long you've been in the faith, the Bible says that our hearts are desperately wicked. We don't even know our own hearts. The Bible says that there's no one righteous, that no one seeks God. John writes in his letter that if you say you're without sin, you're a liar. So the gospel has this powerful way of reminding you, hey, because the gospel is true and because of what Jesus did, being a sinner is no longer fatal. It's the denial that you're a sinner that is. So invites us into honesty. The gospel frees us from the sort of useless, fruitless cycle of trying to protect ourselves and prove ourselves every time we walk into a building like this. It allows us to be free to come in and say, this is my mess, this is who I am, this is what I struggle with. Because you are secure in God's hands based on the unchanging, unmerited, undeserved work of Jesus Christ on your behalf, your faith and trust in what Jesus did. You're not secure because you got your stuff together. Is that good news this morning? You're not secure because you are so impressive to God. What makes us acceptable to God is Jesus. What makes you beautiful to God is Jesus. And so it actually frees you to be honest, creating a space for honesty. The second type of space that I think we need to create for the next generation is a space for growth. Look at David's heart here in the Psalm beginning in verse four. I'll read to you these two verses, four and five. David says, show me your ways, Lord, Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. David is praying and asking for direction, for wisdom, for truth to be taught. Even in the midst of the lament, even in the midst of his struggle, he wants to grow. And I believe that's the heart of the next generation. Even in their struggle, even in their uncertainty, even in the world that they have inherited from us, they do want to grow, they want to know truth, and it starts and ends with understanding God. The text talks about God's ways and God's path and God's truth and God's salvation. So when we talk about creating a space for growth, I'm talking about discipleship. I'm talking about creating an environment where the next generation can take next steps in their faith. I've worked for the last 20 years of my life with youth ministry, and one thing I've learned is this, that creating a space for growth is not simply entertaining teenagers and kids. You know, the church, we can't out-entertain what's outside of these walls. You can't even, any, now when I was a youth pastor years ago, I really only had to compete with things that weren't in the room at the time. Now you can't even out-entertain the, the phone that they're holding in their hand. The whole world is there, all their friends are there. They used to show up to youth group because it was their only chance to see their buddies. Now they can't get away from their buddies because of social media, right? We, we have the opposite problem now. I don't care what you had for breakfast. I don't need to know about your four-year-old's latest bowel movement. Like, you don't need to post about that on social media. We can't even get that sort of distance from each other anymore. Back then, they came together because they needed that. It doesn't exist anymore. The, the, world, has, the world has changed. They live life together on their phones. And so the idea that we're just going to have the best show in town and we're just going to entertain students, that the problem with that mentality is we're actually leveraging consumeristic tendencies to get them to show up as opposed to gathering them around the gospel to help them grow up. It's two very different targets on the wall. 
And so when it comes to creating space for growth, should we be excellent in what we do? Yes. Should we make best use of all the gifts? Should we steward well the resources that we have? Yes. But at the end of the day, if you're just entertaining children and teenagers, no wonder 70% of them want nothing to do with it once there's other options. The other thing that creating space for growth isn't is it's not just keeping them busy. Sort of this misguided mindset that if we just keep them super busy doing church stuff, they'll never sin. <laughs> they'll, 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 never, they'll never get caught up in the wrong group of people. The reason why that doesn't work is because this generation doesn't want a faith that just works inside these walls. It has to work everywhere or they don't think it's true. And so creating space for growth for the next generation. How, how do we do this? Uh, let me give you three thoughts on this. First, I think as a church, we have to value and facilitate intergenerational connections. Intergenerational connections, where young people are connected to those who have been where they want to go, right? And I'm all for, I'm for demographic based ministries. I mean, I've spent my whole life with youth ministry and I'm for children's ministry, I'm for it. But my concern with it in the context of the local church is that we create these silos where they're kind of like they exist apart from each other. And so one of the things I think we have to be aware of with intergenerational ministries and demographic specific ministries is that when we do gather together that, the, so to speak, the walls between us are, are, are transparent, that they, we can see into what's happening there. They can see into what's happening here. I think we have to keep them tightly connected. And I think it's very important that the bridges between the different demographic ministries be broad and easy to cross. Another thing that we have to do if we're going to create space for growth is we have to be willing to share our journey while joining their journey. To share our journey, what we've learned, while joining their journey. And not just being those who tell them what to do, but pacing with them through life. One of the great challenges, I believe, before the church in the season that we're in is are we as a church committed to allowing the next generation to belong before they believe? Not, not you got to look like me, but let's just do life together. Here's a place where you can belong and learn and grow and ask questions. And when the Spirit, uh, when the Spirit works on your heart so that you're ready to believe, we're going to be here to walk you through that and celebrate that with you. But the idea that they got to believe and look like us before they can be a part of us, that's going to hold back the mission of God. And then the last thought is this, when it comes to creating a space for growth, you have to realize that what helps you grow may not help them. And that's actually a really hard thing to let go of. This Thursday, I'll be doing a leadership talk at one of the hospitals in Syracuse, actually, talking with about a dozen of their director-level leaders. And one of the conversations I'm going to have with them is simply the idea of how do you create an organizational culture that actually loves problems more than solutions? We love solutions. But the problem is, is we get married to solutions. But when the solution actually stops properly addressing the problem, it's no good anymore. And the church for years has come up with effective solutions to help disciple and grow people. But it's possible that in this changing world, the solution that worked for you won't work for them. And you're going to have to be okay with that. It doesn't in any way invalidate your experience. It just means that things are changing. The gospel is the only non-negotiable. The way that we do ministry certainly has to change. So creating a space for growth. By, it's very important that we do not reduce discipleship to church attendance, religious activity, and moral living, or just trying to act and live like an adult Christian. We have to connect all growth to the gospel. 
Because apart from a growing appreciation for Jesus and what he's done for us, any other sort of behavioral change that we're, a- we're able to manufacture is not sustainable. It's quite honestly not Christian. It's not uniquely Christian. It's something else. And so going back to the gospel when we talk about growth. All right, lastly this morning, create a space for honesty, create a space for growth, and then create a space for grace. Look at what David says here in verse 7 through 11. He says, do not remember the sins of my youth in my rebellious ways. How many of you are like, amen? Thank you, God. Do not remember the sin of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me. For you, Lord, are good. Not I'm so good, but Lord, you are good. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in his ways. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his ways. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful towards those who keep the demands of his covenant. For the sake of your name, Lord, forgive my iniquity, even though it's great. This psalm, I mean, talk about grace, these snapshots of grace. He forgives our sins. He forgets our sins. He remembers us according to his love and not according to the sort of inadequacy of our love for him. He corrects the sinner. He guides the faithful. He is loving and he's faithful. And this next generation needs a space where they can encounter this radical grace, this grace that is found in the gospel. They need to be told the gospel, reminded of the gospel. They need to sing the gospel. They need to celebrate the gospel over and over and over. Martin Luther said that the greatest daily discipline that a Christian can have is to preach the gospel to themselves. So what is the gospel? I've watched enough sermons at Browncroft online to know that Pastor Rob says the gospel is knowing that I'm more sinful than I would ever believe. You and I are more sinful than we'd ever believe, than we'd ever admit, than we'd ever own up to, than we could possibly know there's more sin in us than we can imagine. But because of Jesus, we're more loved than we would ever hope, than we would ever dream possible. The problem is, is that so many young people in the next generation, when they think of Christianity, they think of it in terms of the things that they have to do. And so for them, it's more about what I've done, what I'm doing, what I'm going to do, and it's less about what Jesus has done for me. And part of that is because we share a responsibility as a church where we're very eager to hand off our principles and our morals and the right way to live and the right way to, but when we focus on that, we reduce the gospel. No longer is it the good news that it's supposed to be. It's just become good advice. The gospel is not good advice. The gospel is good news. And no amount of doing good things and trying harder has ever saved anyone. The only hope we have is that we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We're saved by receiving, resting in, and rejoicing in Jesus' finished, sufficient work on our behalf. And it's grace that actually grows us up. In Titus 2.12, it teaches us that grace teaches us to say no. Sometimes people have this concern about grace. Well, if we just talk about grace, people will live however they want. Well, that's not what the Bible says. Grace is the only thing that has the power not just to change our behavior, but to change our motivations, why we do what we do. I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations with young people as they leave the church and as they're walking out the door, so to speak, the last thing they turn around and say to me is this, I can't do it. I just can't keep the rules. I'm not good enough. I don't measure up. I can't do it. And what I want to yell after them is this. You think that's the end of your faith. 
But the Bible says that that's actually the starting point. That's where we start. When we reach the point where we go, I can't do it. The biggest obstacle between you placing your faith in Jesus is you placing your faith in yourself, your own ability to save yourself. And so creating this space for grace where we help people realize, I can't do it's not the end, it's the beginning. How do we do this? Three quick thoughts on creating space for grace. The first one is this. You have to be ready to share your grace stories with the next generation. Be eager and ready to, to, by the way, in order to do that, it's gonna require some level of transparency on your part, right? To own up to some of your messes. You don't have to be detailed. You don't have to glorify sin. We don't need to know everything you did in the 70s. That's fine, like, that can, that can stay back there. But you do have to be willing to say, hey, this is who I was, but Jesus found me. He rescued me. He's changing me. I'm not who I'm going to be. I'm not who I was, but it's his grace. And be very careful that when you're telling your story to the next generation, that the hero of your story is Jesus and not you. That the hero of your story is Jesus and not a pastor who preached a sermon 25 years ago. That your hero of the story is Jesus and not a program that used to work in the church that doesn't work anymore. We have to be ready to share our grace stories. Look at the end of Deuteronomy chapter 6 where... Moses says, when your children come and ask you, what does this all mean? He says, don't tell them about all the things you've done, but talk about the Lord who brought you out of Egypt and delivered you. Second, we need to meet them where they are at, both spiritually and technologically. They live their lives online, on their phones. And we can either bemoan that and shake our fist at that and ask what's wrong with them and tell them they're gonna have neck problems for the rest of their lives. <laughs> or we can say, how do I take advantage of where they live their lives, almost like a missionary, to be there, to be with them? So reaching out to them through technology, but also meeting them spiritually where they're at. We're, we live in an increasingly biblically illiterate society. So the, the, you know, just the basics of the scripture, often the next generation, uh, even if they grew up in church, the, the, they're just not fluent in it. And so being willing to meet them where they're at. And then last, I already said this, but let me circle back to it. We have to be willing to hold on to this unwavering commitment that at the end of the day, we're not just offering you good advice. We're offering you good news, the good news of what's been done for you. In his book, The Kingdom of God is a Party, uh, Tony Campolo talks about a time that he was in Hawaii on a speaking engagement. And uh, because of the time zone difference, it was three in the morning and he was starving. That sounds like a Tuesday to me, but for him, it took going to Hawaii. So three in the morning and he's starving. And so the only place that he knows is open is this nearby greasy diner run by a guy named Harry. And so he goes in and he, he says hi to Harry and he orders his uh, 3 a.m. meal, whatever that is. I don't know what that is. And uh, very soon after he sits down, a bunch of people come bursting into the diner and fill the diner, about 30 different people. And he looks around, and he realizes these are all prostitutes and street people. And one of the prostitutes who's sitting right next to him turns to the other one and says, hey, my birthday is tomorrow. And the other one kind of snaps back at her. Why are you telling me it's your birthday? You want a birthday cake? You want presents? Big deal. And so the, she kind of snaps back at her and says, no, that's not, I, I don't want a birthday party. I just was telling you. I've, and Tony heard her say, I've never had a birthday party in my whole life. He found out her name was Agnes. And after they left, he asked Terry, he said, does this crew come in here every night? And Harry said, yeah, like clockwork, every night, the same time. He says, let's throw a birthday party tomorrow for Agnes. 
So Harry makes the cake and Tony buys the decorations. And at three in the morning the next day, when Agnes comes in for her uh, sort of nightly visit, everybody yells out, surprise. And they sing happy birthday. And while they're singing happy birthday, she collapses in tears. And she realizes, I'm at my first birthday party ever. They bring out the cake. It's her first birthday cake ever. And they say, let's have the cake. And she goes, oh, can we not cut the cake? Can I just take it back to my apartment? So she just wanted to hold on to it. She didn't want the moment to stop. So she takes the cake after a while and she goes. And after she leaves, Tony says to everybody that's still there, hey, do you mind if we have a prayer for Agnes? Sure, okay. He prays for Agnes. And then afterwards, Harry says to Tony, hey, I didn't know you were a religious person. Tony goes, yeah, I'm I'm actually a preacher. That's why I'm here. I'm speaking at a conference. And Harry looks at him with this incredulous look. You're a preacher? What kind of church do you pastor or preach at? And Tony said to him, the type of church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at three in the morning. And Harry, Harry looks back at him, and this line has haunted me since I first read this story. And he says, no way. No, you don't. There's no church like that. I would attend a church like that. That night in Hawaii, God used a very unlikely duel to create space for grace. And I'm telling you, the next generation will enter that type of space. Now, you might be wondering, I talked to someone after the first service, and his only question was this, I love it all. How? How do we do it? I've tried to give you some thoughts along the way. But at the end of the day, you know the church is not a building, right? You guys know that. You are the church. So when we talk about space for honesty, space for growth, space for grace, stop thinking about this building and start thinking about your life. Everywhere you go around you, imagine a force field of sorts. Is that a space for honesty? Are you honest? Can people be honest with you? Is it a space for growth? Are you spending your life discipling others? And lastly, is it a space for grace? Or when people come near you, do they wonder, I wonder if that person's going to judge me. I wonder how they're going to think about me. I wonder how... It's, it's, a, it's a responsibility we all own. It's not just those of you who work with youth. This is a whole church, body of Christ, kingdom of God, problem. Judges 2.10, one generation died and the next generation rose up and they didn't know God and they didn't know what he's done. And my prayer is not on our watch, not in this generation. Make Browncroft Community Church and every church that loves Jesus and preaches Jesus in Rochester a church that creates space for honesty, growth, and grace. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, this morning, I ask that you would seal to our hearts the truth of your word. I pray that you would make us those who do not just hear your word, but those who respond. Help us to think through what's the next step that I can take in response to what your spirit is saying to my heart this morning. And I pray that you would help us to uh, open wide the door to the next generation so that they could be part of us for your glory and for your honor. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. God bless you guys as you go.